Thank you, Tim. Good morning, everyone. Well, um, as Dan has said, it's the final Sunday of Advent, uh, which means that Christmas is just around the corner. Um, I must say, I think that the new Lidl in town is being propped up, financially speaking, by the Eggleston household as we stock up and prepare for Christmas. They have the most amazing German treats at this time of year. I don't get a commission. <laughs> many, many people are looking forward to Christmas even more than usual because of all the disruptions and restrictions of last year when lots of people couldn't come together. Now, there is still some uncertainty, of course, um, about this year. Uh, perhaps it won't seem real until your guests actually knock on the door and they come through and uh, you serve up plates of food around the table and exchange presents with those you love. That's when you'll know that it's really happening. Well, the passage before us has that same sort of anticipatory feel about it. Uh, hopefully you'll recall from last time how Joel prophesied about the judgment and the discipline of God's people. Joel explained that the plague of locusts was a response to the sins of the priests and the, um, the elders and the people. The physical devastation of the land reflected the spiritual state of their hearts. It was a wake-up call to repent and return to the Lord. Rend your hearts and not your garments, said Joel, in the assurance that in the Lord there is refuge renewal and restoration from what's happened before. So the Lord said in chapter 2, verse 25 and following, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel. The Lord promised to show his people that he is and will remain with them always. And in our passage today, we hear how the Lord will do that. Essentially, the Lord offers some signs that will help the people to see what's really happening. That the Lord is with his people and that he will bring them home to him. I've summarized those signs to look out for into three parts. Um, sign number one, a spiritual harvest for God's people. Uh, sign two, a complete reversal for God's people. And sign number three, the unhindered dwelling of God with his people. But first of all, we, we must remember that this isn't just a word to some ancient Israelites. It's not just historical record. It's a living word to us too, as those who are joined to those same people by faith in the same promises. Yet how should we hear it as God's people today. Well, before we get into the detail, uh, just a brief word about prophecy and how we should relate to it. Um, Joel, as you know, is a prophet. He declares God's word to God's people. 
And sometimes the word he gives is descriptive, uh, naming or identifying the problem and explaining the events after the, after the fact. At other times, his prophecy is predictive, uh, telling God's people what's going to happen. And when prophecy is predictive, it's important to remember that it doesn't necessarily refer to one single event. As it unfolds, predictive prophecy Prophecy has different horizons, uh, some immediate, some further away, beyond what we can see. Uh, to illustrate, imagine a great mountain range. Uh, from afar, it looks like one big block, one picture, one thing. But as you get closer and you journey through that same mountain range, different peaks come into view. In fact, as I experienced myself trekking through the Atlas Mountains, you can't actually see the highest peaks until you're on top of other ones. The point is, when we hear these words of prophecy as God's people today, it's vital for us to grasp where we are. Some of it relates to what's now behind us, uh, like the restoration of the land from the locust plague. Some of it is unfolding around us as we speak. And some of it, some of it is still in front of us, that the next peak is still to come. So the same words can um, uh, refer to those different horizons because it's all part of the same reality, the same mountain range. So from where we're standing today, what's important is that we claim and take hold of what's already been given and to look with hope and expectation at what's still to come. And when we do that, grasping more of what's already and what's not yet, um, it'll help us to live well and faithfully in the present. So back to Joel and that first sign. Sign number one, a spiritual harvest of God's people. Um, reading from Joel 2 verse 28 again, and afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters were, will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. I'm sorry, I'm probably reading from a different version, but never mind. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. My Advent calendar uh, for this year teaches me how to say Happy Christmas in different languages each day. I was going to bring it with me. Shame. Um, each day, usually after breakfast, I'm reminded, um, because of the chocolate, um, I'm reminded how these very promises from Joel have at least partially come to pass. Because if you remember, at Pentecost, um, as recorded in Acts 2, the Spirit miraculously enabled the apostles to declare the wonders of God in a multitude of languages. The crowds of people who'd come from all over the ancient world and witnessed this, uh, the event of Pentecost were bewildered and amazed by it. And at that point, Peter, the apostle, the same guy who wrote 1 Peter, which we've been going through recently, then stood up 
and addressed the crowds, and he quoted this very passage from Joel to show how the promises of God initially given to a few have now been extended to people all over the globe without distinction. And wonderfully, that includes us. The fact that we are here today, gathered like this, hearing the, the Lord's word to us, is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But by the way, it's not that the Spirit was inactive before Pentecost. The Spirit did indwell some Old Testament believers before then. Uh, what Joel prophesied about and realized at Pentecost is a time when um, the range of God's salvation would increase throughout the world as something that would be global in scope and, and cosmic in scale. So whether male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, the Spirit's outpouring would lead to a stretching out of God's kingdom. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it's worth pointing out that the origin of the church is not in fact Pentecost. Um, it's Roots lie in the promises of, of God to his people, to those, um, as Dan called, the, those ancient dads, the patriarchs, and, uh, and the prophets, and John the Baptist, and, and Mary, and so on, and us. Well, what a humbling, and yet breathtaking privilege it is to be part of that uh, one big plan of God. How generous of God to include us in these very promises. In fact, Jesus told a parable along similar lines. He, he said a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. And um, at the time of the banquet, uh, lots of those guests um, who'd been invited said to the servant who went to go and get them, um, you know, I'm too busy. I've, I've got other things on. I, I can't come. They made excuses for why they couldn't come to the feast. And so, Jesus said, the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, to the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Just because some reject the invitation does not mean that the house will be empty. Far from it. You know the decline in church numbers, which we see in the UK at the moment, is not an indication that Joel's prophecy has failed. The fact is, the church throughout the world is still growing and widening to include all kinds of people. The Spirit is being poured out today. He is filling lives and families and communities. In fact, I've heard from a, a number of um, uh, people speaking at the moment that it, at least in this country, it's, it's the 20s and the 30s, those, in, those who are younger, who through the experience of, of COVID and perhaps the, what they've gone through, um, they're being led to, to seek something of, of transcendence. There's a hunger for spiritual realities. 
And so that spiritual harvest around the world, even now, is a sign that God is gathering and dwelling with his people. Rejoice. The Lord is still at work today. His spirit is being poured out. But of course, there is another horizon in view, one that is still ahead of us. Uh, the images of those that darkened sun and the blood-colored moon bring to mind the effects of the locust plague. And um, last week, Steve provided us with a, a vivid picture of a locust swarm covering and consuming everything around them. But this time, as the Lord draws near in judgment again, it's on a cosmic, not just a local scale. And it's no longer God's people in the dock. After turning back to the refuge of the Lord, they will be delivered. Rather, it's those who reject the Lord and seek to do God's people harm who are in view. And so we come to sign number two, a complete reversal for God's people. Uh, reading from chapter three, verse one. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. For God's people, after darkness, the darkness of the locust plague, there is light. A remnant gathered up, the land restored, and a return home to Jerusalem, also known as Zion. For them it meant peace, not war. Uh, which is reminiscent of Isaiah's words, um, which he, he prophesied, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, about a, a time when God's people will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Under the protection of the Lord, their instruments of war will be turned into instruments of harvest. Uh, that's the only use they'll have. But for the leaders of the nations that took advantage of the Israelites, uh, their weakness and their plight, the likes of Tyre and Sidon, it's the opposite. From the heights of power and wealth, they'll be brought down to the valley, uh, the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the valley of the Lord's judgment. Because they scattered the Lord's people, they will be scattered. Because they sold Israelite children for sex and slavery, they will lose their own. Because they made war against God's people, they will have to defend themselves against him. And their instruments of harvest will have to be turned into weapons. It's all they'll be good for. Now these principles of justice um, are evident in, even today. Um, for instance, in the, in the British criminal system, um, it's known as retributive justice. The severity of the punishment is in direct proportion to the severity of the crime. I.e., you don't get a life sentence for stealing an apple. Uh, but as Steve mentioned last week, you'll rightly get a long sentence for harming children and the most vulnerable in our society. The guilty are punished. 
But that principle may still raise some questions for us. It can sound harsh to our ears, perhaps partly because we're somewhat removed from the criminal system um, in our lives. If that's the case, I just want to offer three uh, brief thoughts or, or questions to reflect on. Number one, would you want to live in a world where evil goes unpunished, where there's no justice for the oppressed? After a long five-year uh, legal battle, it's only just this past week that a settlement was reached with hundreds of women abused by Larry Nasser in the US gymnastics program. Nasser was sentenced to 300 years in prison, a, a life sentence, of course. Finally, those women who suffered horrifically are getting some form of compensation. Of course, it won't be enough to wipe away the harm that's been done. And sadly, there are many, many victims of abuse who go unnoticed. But nothing goes unnoticed to God. He sees the evil in, and harm inflicted on others, and it won't go unpunished in the end. The hostile forces that seek to wage war against God and his people will be brought down. Joel calls that the day of the Lord. Second, remember that in the same way that God is just, God is merciful. God is not like us. He doesn't have parts whereby he's somewhat, you know, merciful, somewhat uh, just, uh, somewhat uh, good and somewhat holy. He simply is those things. A, a friend of mine puts it like this. He says that God is maximally alive in all his attributes. He's not static or passive. And that's because God is goodness itself. Whatever we know and experience of goodness is only a pale likeness of his perfect goodness. And so when we say God is merciful, there is no comparison we can make. Without contradicting his justice, God is fully and perfectly merciful. God sees and cares for the lowly in a way that we, we cannot even possibly dream or imagine. Of course, Christ embodies that sheer mercy in his human life so that when we see and, uh, see and know him, we, we see and know uh, God's mercy and, and goodness ourselves. Uh, at Christianity Explored this past week, we were looking at the passage um, where Jesus tells his disciples to stop restricting the children from coming to, to him. He says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. They're welcome. Elsewhere, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. There is nowhere that God's mercy cannot extend. God is merciful even towards sinners, to those who want to wage war against him. Uh, for instance, Paul, who was one, at one time persecuted uh, the Lord and his church, he became an apostle. Well, how is that? Well, it's not because the Lord let Paul's sin slide. It's because Jesus uh, took on Paul's guilt and paid the penalty for his sin on the cross and welcomed Paul in. As a result, as Joel 
2.32 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. God is just. And God is merciful. And finally, the third thing to, to bear in mind when we read passages like this and, and sometimes find them hard, is that God is God. When there are things in God's word that we find difficult to accept or understand, you know, the problem is not with God. It may be an issue with our interpretation, but it may also be an issue with the indwelling sin in our hearts, which we don't want to give up. We want to run the world and direct things in the way we think they should be. But God is God and we are not. As Paul puts it, he's the potter, we're the clay. Pots don't say to their maker, let me, let me show you how to do this properly. Now, we don't always see how or why, but it is God who governs us, not the other way around. What we do know is that God is good. He is good, goodness itself. So if it would help to explore some of those things a little bit further, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, for now, back to the passage and sign number three. The unhindered dwelling of God with his people. Uh, Joel 3, 17 to 21. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, uh, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. I suppose this is more of a goal than a sign. Um, however, there is a definite sense in which we can see and participate in the blessings of God's dwelling with us now, right now. As we wait for the full reality of this vision and this lifelong season of Advent, even in its darkness and gloom, we wait with hope and joy because the Lord has come. As we'll sing tonight at the um, 7 p.m. carol service, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The, the fountain has been unblocked, as it were, in, in Job's language. It's now gushing forth. The incarnation brings with it these wonderful promises uh, realized to, to all sorts of people, including us. Christ has come and he is with us. And by the Spirit poured out on us, the Lord continues to dwell in the midst of his people, saving us, gathering us, preserving us, strengthening us, feeding and teaching us, disciplining us, purifying us, comforting us, growing us, 
working wonders among us. The last words of this prophecy are so striking. The Lord dwells in Zion. What a wonderful way to finish the prophecy. Because, you know, Zion isn't simply that, um, that temple part of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's much more than that. It's the spiritual house of God. I.e., as we saw in 1 Peter, we, the church, incorporated and built on Christ, are the temple of God's dwelling, which will one day be filled, filled to the max, and permanently established in a renewed and restored creation, free from evil and sin and suffering. So whether our Christmas plans are disrupted again this year or not, that much is certain. The Lord is with us. The Lord dwells in Zion. Hold on to that. To him be the glory forever. Amen.